Hello and welcome to a special micro-materialism. Normally, micro-materialism is, you know, two people breaking down a material science topic into about 15 minutes. But not only do we have three people this time, for the first time in the Sparks Shed studio ever, we have Ramsey joining us. Hi, Ramsey. Hey, how's it going, guys? Also, there's Andrew, but he's obviously less important here. That's right. I'm here as well. This is a monumental episode for several reasons, as you pointed out. First of all, Jared is taking the helm. He's this the is, helmsman yes. of this episode. And we have Ramsey in person for the first time. And hopefully we will be having Ramsey more in the future because it's looking like he's going to be coming out here to do some research and other sciencey things. So maybe we'll be getting some more Ramsey specials. Oh, yeah. Super excited about that. Anyways, this episode is a little different. A lot of times we look at news relating to the material science world, but this time we're looking at news relating to the real world through the view of material science. The real world, because, you know, material science the real world. a little different than the real world, let's be honest, okay? There's, there's different problems in both worlds. Anyways, we were talking today about the silicon shortage. Now, anyone who follows the Instagram, you've probably seen me post some stupid things about the computer that I used to edit the podcast and do many things on all the time. And it was about last year. I was like, I want to upgrade this again. I want to get some more RAM. And so I'm looking, when's the best time to buy RAM? And I find this article and it's like, hey, you want RAM? Don't worry. RAM prices are about a plummet because they've overproduced. There's so much, like just there's abundance everywhere. The prices are going to be so low. And so I put it on the watch list on Amazon and I was like, let's go. It's already 60 bucks. How much lower can it get? Don't think about it. January comes around. I go to look. Imagine my shock when I see $120 as the price tag. And I was like, oh, okay, something clearly has happened. And so I start reading through, and essentially a perfect storm of economic, environmental, literally every single factor came together to create this mess of a shortage. Now, the question is, what makes silicon so important? Why do we need it so badly? Andrew, what does it do? Silicon is really the foundation the foundational building block of the modern electronics industry. Virtually everything that has some sort of processor in it is based on silicon. Uh, silicon, because it's a semiconducting material, is very useful for building transistors. And so we're not really going to get into the science here. We've done this on other episodes, but it really is an important material, and securing access to it is essential to meeting technological demand. <clears throat> All right, so building on that, silicon's... Uh, in demand because of its energy band gap, right? So it has a 1.1 EV uh, band gap versus like the next best material, which is germanium at 0.66. So, you know, there needs to either, a lot of work needs to go into discovery of new materials that have um, great band gaps that we could use, or we just have to try to find a better process to uh, making these chips. Now, there, there was a point when this first hit where it was like, oh, okay, the computer nerds can't get their more RAM, like boo-hoo, and people didn't really care. And no one really cared until the day that Ford and Hyundai and all these car companies were like, oh, we can't make cars anymore. We don't get enough chips. And so that's when it really, that's when all of a sudden CNN, everyone's writing about it. And so this is probably one of the few times where we're doing this episode, and all of the research I did, I was just going to major news websites. There was no dot edus there was no dot whatevers it was all dot coms so the first big thing the thing that really kicked us all off is that the number one place that they make these is in taiwan taiwan ships an insane amount of 
semiconductors. However, it's a very water-intensive process. It's an incredibly water-intensive process, as Andrew's going to get into in a second. And how can you make something that's water-intensive when your country's in the middle of a drought? <laughs> so when this drought hit, they were already having to scale back things because obviously, in the end of the day, the people need the water more than the companies do. And so the government started diverting water to the people and less to the companies. Now, of course, going back to what I said, what, why is it so water-intensive and how water-intensive is it? Right. I was actually really surprised. We were at dinner last night and we were reading about this and it kind of blew our socks off at that table. The waitress really didn't know what to think. Creating an integrated circuit on a 300 millimeter wafer requires about 2,200 gallons of water in total. 1,500 of those have to be highly pure. And I'm not talking like something that's coming out of your Brita filter. I mean like one part per billion contaminants. This, this can't have any minerals. It can't have any, any other sort of additives in it. It can't have any sort of microorganisms and it has to be highly pure because you don't want to contaminate these uh, wafers as you're making them. The semiconducting industry actually spends about $1 billion on water and wastewater systems every year. And a single fab will use between 2 to 4 million gallons of water per day. And if you think about that, that's equivalent to you know the water that a town of 50 to 70,000 people uses on a daily basis. So it's extremely intensive. And then the thing about it is, like Andrew said, you're you're just rinsing it off. So basically you're you're forfeiting the water because you can't be, it's so hard to clean all of the chemicals and stuff that they use after. Yeah, I mean, they're doing all sorts of photolithography and other processes to achieve these complex structures on these chips that it often includes pretty harsh chemicals. And so when you rinse these off, that's now in the water. You're going to have to try to filter all those out. And that can be pretty tricky. So a lot of times it's just it's just gone. This water's lost. It has to go through extreme treatment to be reused. Now, obviously, you you could say, uh, okay, like a drought, other countries can make it. And that is true. So other countries started to step up. So the U.S.'s plan was, oh, we'll just build a factory. However, you know, it takes a while, and it's incredibly expensive. So they're going to be building one in Arizona. But by the time that it's built, like, it, the shortage is going to be over. This is going to take a few-year process to get everything approved and get things going. And then China is currently in hot water because they are attempting to poach people from the Taiwanese company, and it's and then they're getting, like, sued, I believe, in international court over trying to poach people. So it's both sides are trying to fix it, and neither of them are really making an effect. And then the automotive companies, like I said earlier, they didn't really care. They were kind of in the clear. And then a fire happened. The place that makes automotive chips burned down. And so they had to start going to other chip manufacturers and taking from their supply. Interesting all the pieces lined up like this. And then yeah. a ship crashed. <laughs> Cherry on the top. Yeah. <laughs> right. You can't move things when there's a ship blocking the canal. So on top of this incredible shortage we were facing, global trade was halted for seven days while they moved a boat. You no, know, they had that one excavator on it. Yeah, they had that one excavator <laughs> moving that boat. And it's just, there was this incredible, perfect storm that all came together. And then, on top of all of that, there's the demand-supply curve that hit. The most incredible storm of demand-supply curve ever. Where, basically, COVID hit. And so, they kept making these DDR4 chips. They kept making RAM. They kept making all of these chips. And then, they're like, oh, well, what, okay, we can't ship it to the U.S. Trade's basically closed and halted because COVID had just started. So they're just building up this huge supply. And then all of a sudden, you can ship everything at once. And so they go over there, and they're like, oh, no, we're going to have to 
really put these on sale because we have so much. So the price goes down. And then every person in America got $1,200 and wanted a computer. And so they spent more money. (laughs) And then every person in America got $600 and then $1,400. And so all of these people are getting this money. And they're building gamer laptops. And they're building gamer Gamer, PCs. Gamer PCs, And they're spending more money. Obviously, you know, a lot of people use it for necessities and rent. But the people who didn't need it, they started spending it on extraneous things. Like, I, I bought more RAM with some of the stimulus money. And or so, to mine Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, literally. And then that's the, that's the final. That's what everybody's doing. There it is. That's yeah. the final thing. The NFT craze, the Bitcoin craze. So to mine crypto, you need a GPU, which is a graphical processing unit. And there's a hash rate associated with every one. The more expensive, the better the hash rate. The better the hash rate, the better you mine. And when you mine it, they're essentially just looking over the ledger of... Um, transactions and verifying everything and that's why it's like they considered it such a perfect system now you know that wastes a lot of power but that's not the conversation to be had today what it does is it destroys those gpus destroys those silicon units because it's such an intensive process where they overvolt the heck out of it and you're like okay whatever but because that demand is going up now the suppliers want to make more gpus and so the graphics card companies like nvidia and amd they're buying more and more silicon and it's creating more and more of a shortage. So something needs to break here. Either we need to end a drought, which good luck. You need to completely rebuild the infrastructure of multiple companies or you need to stop all demand for silicon long enough for the supply to meet it. So we're essentially in this in this standoff where something has to happen and who knows what it's going to be that finally breaks it. Like there was a point last year when Nvidia was like, "Oh, We'll be able to meet supply by December. It's April, and they can't meet supply. It's April, and literally you have to enter into raffles to get a chance to give them your money. <laughs> like, that's I, – I was someone who lucked out into getting one of these new cards, and it was I, – I spent, like – at the time, I spent what retail was, and I was like, oh, I, I should go sell my old card because obviously I don't need it anymore – It sold for more than I bought the new card for. It's four years old. People are so desperate for a scrap of a computer piece that they'll, like, pay triple the price just to play a little game or to mine a little Bitcoin. So tying this all together, this really does tie back to the first Andrew Jared special about vulcanized rubber and maintaining the material supply lines. That's right, yeah. Back then, rubber was hugely important to so many different industries and with the war going on it was only more important uh, from a manufacturing perspective and so today this is somewhat analogous back then they tried to build almost artificial cities in the middle of jungles so that they could secure manufacturing and today that's kind of what they're trying to do in arizona with building a factory to try to maintain that supply as well yeah they're, they're definitely trying yeah i think that that's also something that's so important is that there's obviously there's no war going on but there's like this element of like a trade war over these things and it's companies fighting each other now. It's because every single person, is, like you said, it. this is like the new, this is the new in everything. There was no, almost no piece of something with a circuit in the entire world you could buy that doesn't have like a drop of silicon in it somewhere. Yeah, now that you think about it, everybody has like, you know, multiple devices, right? Yeah, we're, we're literally talking into three powered mics that yeah. runs into a mixer that's running into my laptop. I got my cell phone on yeah. me. You guys got your laptops on you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot when people think of material science, they often just think of the science itself, but there is a science of securing that supply and demand as well and making sure that you have availability, right? Are our minds operating at, you know, enough of a 
mm-hmm. uh, capacity to produce and meet supply and demand? Are we going to be able to ship this to our companies? Think about if you're working at um, some sort of tech company that's producing cell phones like Samsung or Apple. You're trying to launch the next iteration of your product. You have a certain expectation for the amount of demand, the amount of people who are going to be able to buy that product. And now all of a sudden you can't get the silicon to meet that demand. How are you going to ship this product? Are you going to wait? Are you going to delay it? Is that going to incur a lot of costs? Think about if you're in silicon research, we want to discover new materials or ways of using less of it. What happens if you can't even get any for your research or it's so expensive that it prices you out? And, and that's even the most interesting thing, too, is when you look at this, uh, I even like now, we're very quick to call it silicon shortage, but it's, it's even to the point now where it's more chip shortage than anything else. It's the fact that we have these materials that we can't turn into something because we just don't have the ability to do it. And it's, it's such an incredible thing that, like, or that, such an incredible thing, like Andrew said, you really have to balance all points of the supply line because maybe you are mining enough, but like they said, you don't, you don't have enough water or you can't get it there in time or there's, there's so many external factors. And I think that's why it's so important to not only secure the supply, but diversify the supply because you know it's a problem when a single country's infrastructure taking a hit is destroying the world's infrastructure. Yeah, this is a this is not unique to this either. Um, in polycrystalline diamond manufacture, initially one of the core elements uh, for it, pyrophyllite, which is used in the cell assembly that they press it, mm-hmm. was only mined in South Africa. And quickly, manufacturers realize like we can't have this bottleneck because if this goes down, we have no other way of getting it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so quickly, you know, many other industries have figured out how to diversify their supply so that they don't have these sorts of bottlenecks where one you know, cut in the chain will just destroy the entire supply chain. And there's something so incredible about this because, I mean, there's some incredibly intelligent people working on this and they, I guess they didn't see this coming and they, and, or maybe they did and they just didn't act fast enough. I think with coronavirus and all these other complications going yeah. on, it I was mean, yeah, it's it's like a lot of things did, can slip yeah. under the rug. It's like we said, this is, this is without a doubt the most perfect storm. So I suppose that, you know, this this isn't really a knock against the industry. They they are doing their best to get things rolling again, but I think that this is definitely a sign that we need to look at every other thing that we use every day and really say, if this happened again, could we continue to make this? Do we have enough diversified supply that we'll never run out of it? Yeah, it sounds like you need to build the proper infrastructure for all this. And yeah, re- recyclability as well. Yeah, should, and then also this is definitely something that is. I think a good case for constant materials discovery. It's like you kind of said way earlier, which was there is other options. We don't have to use this. This is just the best one now. So if we could push new materials discovery constantly, maybe we could find other options so that if this happens, we don't have to say, oh, no, we're done for. You can be like, okay, well, let's use the next best thing. And maybe it won't be as good, but at least we'll continue to be able to meet demand for products. Yeah, I wonder how that's going to affect your device, though. Well, yeah, Silicon I mean to that that's a whole other thing and who knows really. And there's going to be <laughs> there's going to be so many the I don't even, you know. It's going to be dial up all over again. We're yeah. gonna, <laughs> <laughs> it's the first step towards quantum computing. That's where we're moving. <laughs> no all right. silicon. Yes. On that note, thank you all for listening. This was a little bit different than our usual micromaterialisms, but we hope you enjoyed it and we think it's a really important topic that although tangentially related to material science is still important and should be something that is considered by all material scientists. If you like the show, please consider giving us a review on iTunes, or if you want to give us some feedback, uh, consider sending us a message on Instagram at materialism.podcast or our email 
uh, materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'd also like to thank the sponsors of this episode, Matt Match and Elsevier. They both do really great work, and we're happy to have them on board. Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Have a good one. Sweet. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.